Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Kyle Egan from Baylor College of Medicine on this show. Kyle, please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You got your PhD from Stanford University in 2017. You then began your independent career as an inaugural Feinberg Fellow at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Then in 2021, you joined the faculty of Baylor College of Medicine and you are currently an assistant professor. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Yeah, so I became interested in biology probably as a child, very early on. I was initially interested in medicine, and I had friends in elementary school who were interested in medicine, and there was a group of us very young that wanted to become emergency room doctors, like ER physicians and, you know, like trauma physicians. Um, and that kind of evolved through high school. I had a fantastic biology teacher in high school who taught us really encourage us to think. And it was not, you know, we were thinking about problems, how to think through problems, and it was not rote memorization. And I really enjoyed that and really enjoyed that mentorship from him. And so that's really how I kind of got started interested in biology um, very early on. And then I kind of career kind of progressed from that in through undergraduate and, and grad school and those type of things. So I think it was this combination of interest in medicine to begin with and and having a really good a high school biology teacher who, who encouraged us to think and be curious about biology. So coming to your science, uh, that centers around the molecular basis of how chromosomes are folded in three dimensions and compartmentalized, hard word, within nucleoli. I want to start in the year 2015. Uh, this was the time when you were with Roger Kornberg. In the first publication, you did high C of polyteen chromosomes and looked at their tats. Um, How did it come that you worked with Roger Kornberg in the first? <laughs> was probably the first question. And what did you then find in this publication? Yes. So I was, so yeah. So if we, you know, fast forward from my early um, career, you know, I ended up at Stanford for actually an MD PhD degree. So I was a dual degree student and I never ended up finishing that medical degree. I'm happy we could chat about that. But um, my PhD, I was looking for biochemistry. I had been trained in biochemistry and was really interested in structural biology. So I was looking at a number of structural biology labs at Stanford and Rogers lab, of course, was one of them, having done a lot of work on transcription. And so I started rotating in the lab and um, Roger and I had an agreement that I could stay as long as I wanted and I just never left. Um, and that was kind of, so I rotated, I didn't do any other rotations. I just kind of kept going because the science was so fascinating. And, you know, although Roger's lab has a long-standing interest in transcriptional regulation, he also has a very long-standing interest in chromatin. And there was a small group at the time working on chromatin, mostly chromatin biochemistry, the machinery that regulates access to the chromatin a lot of his chromatin remodeling enzymes and so i started working on that started working get it talking to those people and being interested in structure i had a ambitious idea as a young graduate student i was going to solve the structure of the chromatin fiber using cryo-em microscopy um 
And this was before kind of the resolution revolution in cryo EM. So we had a microscope at the time and I was learning my cryo EM and learning some yeast biochemistry to prepare chromatin. And I'd say about halfway through my PhD, the microscope broke. And it was about nine months of me troubleshooting the microscope. And I kind of realized I needed a side project at the time, something else to kind of make progress on. And so this was a, this was about 2012. So this is very right around the time when all of the so-called TADS papers came out from Joab Decker, Edith Hurd, um, Bing Rang, and Victor Corsese. So it's kind of papers in mouse, human, and Drosophila all at the same time. And found this really fascinating, definitely related to chromatin and chromosome structure. But being in a structural biology lab and thinking about biochemistry, we really were asking questions like, how did this what do these things mean? And because it's all based on this high C technology, which infers DNA folding. And so we are asking, I have the question, is there a way to correlate the the high C data that we get from genomics with some sort of direct visualization of the chromosomes, likely via microscopy? And so the system that naturally popped to mind were these polyteen chromosomes from Drosophila. So this kind of ancient this ancient or very classical system that had been studied for hundreds of years where um, the cells in a Drosophila um, and certain Drosophila tissues, mostly this, namely the most frequently studied, the salivary gland, the cells undergo DNA replication without cell division. And uh, they do this up to, so you get up to a thousand copies of the genome in a single cell, but these copies aren't just randomly floating around the cell. All of the chromatids remained uh, along with each other and the homologs paired. So you get these giant chromosomes that you can see by microscopy. And a kind of an early analogy I like to use is this was, and the bands are, it has this characteristic banding pattern. There's more densely packed bands, lighter interbands, and then some intermediate gray bands. And they're, they're, some are bigger, fatter, some are thinner. Um, and so there's some irregularity to that. And because of that, um, Classical Drosophila geneticists in the early 1900s were able to position genes along the chromosomes. And this was kind of basically your first map of the genome. Before you even knew that DNA was the hereditary material, you could say that this gene was here relative to there based on the banding pattern. So we, I wondered whether we could see if the folding patterns that were being detected by HiC at the time were reflective in these polyteen states. And indeed, they were the TADs. Were, turned out to be the polyteen bands on our data sets with more folded compact regions at Drosophila correlated with these bands almost perfectly. We could use the high C data to predict, to design fish probes and predict where bands would be. Um, and then we were able to compare the high C data from a polyteen cell, which has got about 2048 copies of the genome to a diploid cell and see very similar high C patterns, at least at the level of the TADs. And so it looked like this was kind of a general um, that, that the polyteen state was reflecting an actual diploid state and probably was something that was very meaningful and kind of connected classic cytology to more modern NGS methods. And so that's kind of what was the bulk of my thesis work working with Roger and kind of started kind of by fascination in nuclear organization and chromosome 3D structure. Did you ever fix the microscope? I did not fix the microscope. I wonder... 
This is a great question. I did not. I kind of the project took off, and so I just kind of kept going with it with the with the polyteen high C project. I think the microscope probably got fixed, and then the resolution revolution happened in a new microscope at Stanford. Like a consortium of investigators, I think bought a new microscope. Um, I'd love to get back to more direct visualization, kind of classic structural biology of the chromosomes. Um, and I think as the technology develops, maybe we'll eventually drift back into that area. Uh, you then followed up on this by looking at TED boundaries, uh, which are associated with CTCF in mammals. Um, you investigated the association of CTCF with polycom group proteins. Um, yeah, was this then already in your own lab or, or was this still in, in, in Roger's lab? And uh, what did you find yeah. there? Yeah, that was a follow-up from Roger's lab. So when we had published, so kind of short recap, about the time we published the polyteen work, um, HiC had kept evolving and some groups, particularly in mammalian cells, had published it, um, were identifying CTCF loops in mammals because of improvements in sample prep and in, you know, just improvements in sequencing technologies to be able to sequence deeper. And they found that there were those CTCF loops in, in mice and humans. And no one had really looked at that resolution in Drosophila because the Drosophila genome was smaller, or this was kind of an immediate next thing to do would just be to compare the Drosophila folding pattern to the mammalian folding pattern. And so it was a simple follow-up, even just in cultured cells. Let's just do a high-resolution high-C map of Drosophila. And we actually looked at there. It was interesting. We actually did not see CTCF, CTCF loops in Drosophila, even though CTCF is conserved in Drosophila and other groups around the same time have published almost identical observations as ours. And so I think it's very much now, um, you know, field agrees that the CTCF, CTCF loops or the peaks in the high C map that we interpret as loops, they don't exist in Drosophila, even though CTCF is there and still hasn't been really followed up. And instead we found um, very striking peaks at polycomb bound sites. Um, and that was just kind of the, And I, th and I think that was something that was, if you look through the literature, kind of made sense with a lot of previous observations in flies and in mammals. We just had kind of done it genome-wide, kind of in an unbiased way, not really looking for that. But honestly, the thought was, let's see if it's the CTCF loops that we saw in humans were conserved in flies, and we didn't get that result. And then we saw these other really striking peaks on the map, and they look like polycomb. And And that also agrees with what other people have been seeing. So I think it was really satisfying. And so that was kind of the, the tail end of my PhD in, in Roger's lab. So what would that mean functionally? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it, it we, you know, we didn't do any functional experiments. We kind of hypothesized that maybe that you could also have repressive loops. Everybody thinks about loops in terms of like enhancer promoter loops to turn genes on. Um, I think there's also there could also be a totally separate class of loops in terms of repressive loops. And I think it's really something fascinating. And I think a lot of people are working on this. We haven't really followed up on this at all, but I think mm -hmm. it's kind of a, okay. a really good and important thing to consider that there's many, the genome folding influences many aspects of biological function. And we're just starting to really scratch the surface on that. Yeah, then talking about the work that you did when you started your own lab, um, what is an obvious question then when Polycom is involved is that um, the influence of histone modification, specifically histone acetylation, maybe that's not so much Polycom, on the formation of interactions of chromatin domains. Um, can you talk about the study? What was the process like moving from a PhD lab to yeah, your own lab um, and uh, about the results of this uh, work? Yes, happy to. So this was 
Um, I had, so I had a very unique opportunity. We had done, um, you know, in Roger's lab, I had kind of set up a lot of these systems on my own and I had gotten the opportunity after to graduate to have this fellows position at Northwestern University with, so I didn't do a postdoc. I kind of started my independent lab right after my PhD. Um, and this is always, you know, could be challenging. I felt that I had great training from being in Roger's lab and having set up projects and systems in Roger's lab that weren't kind of typical, the the most kind of standard thing that the lab had been doing, I felt comfortable that I could do that kind of set up my own lab right out of a PhD. You know, this might not be for every PhD student to immediately jump into independence, but I felt kind of confident in that. You know, I think there's always the questions of revolve around the experiences you don't have, like some more administrative or leadership things like hiring people and managing people and I was very, very fortunate. I hired very great. I was fortunate to get great people to join the lab very, very early on. And I think that allowed us to, to, to take a little bit more risks and do push the boundaries on some of the exciting science. And because when you set up the lab, there's a significant amount of downtime. I mean, there's months of downtime between leaving your previous institution, you arrive, the space is empty. Um, you start really thinking hard about what to, to work on. And so a lot of people at the time had been doing excellent work on cohesion and CTCF, and I knew that was going to continue. I, didn't, I saw no reason for us to, to keep working on that. There were very talented scientists making great discoveries in that space around the around TADs and the loops that are created by CTCF and cohesion. But there's a whole other feature set in the, in the high C data called compartments, these checkerboard or plaid patterns in the map, which were the first characterized patterns in 2009, but... For, you know, when I started the, my position in 2017, most people weren't looking at them. And I decided I want to study compartments, partly because we would also think that at the time, we, the, the thought process in the field was Drosophila chromosomes might be more folded by a compartment-based mechanism. Um, or at least that was the features that the high c maps were showing. And so maybe I could take some of my knowledge or intuition from Drosophila chromatin maps and apply it to mammalian cells. So that was really the big picture question that we were asking and we're still asking that in terms of and kind of one early hypothesis was there was a connection between histone modifications and chromosome 3d structure and then the question always becomes how do you tackle this because it's a pretty big question so we were i was kind of searching for systems in which we could do this um and it was hard it was different a little tricky at the time because this is you know 2017 ish high C resolution's improving, but it's still not at the resolution of ChIP-seq. I mean, we're off by orders of magnitude. So if you can map histone modifications at nucleosome, resolu re nucleosome level resolution, you couldn't do that by, you, didn't, you couldn't even get close to that type of resolution by high C. So I needed to find a system that would allow, that would be such that any observation we saw in the ChIP-seq data, we could be confident that if it, if it were to show a change in the high C, we would be able to detect it. Um, so just basically some more technical things. And we came across this really interesting system, um, a fusion oncoprotein, BRD4-NUT. So there, this is a, a rare cancer called nut carcinoma. It's driven by fusions of the nut gene, most commonly fused to BRD4. And BRD4 is a really intensively studied chromatin regulator. Um, and nut is tissue restricted expression to the testes, except in these tumors, where, which are driven by BRD4 nut fusions. And when I had 
read the literature, I came across a really good paper by Christopher French at the time where he showed that BRD4 nuts spread across about a megabase or more of chromatin, and it hyperacetylated these regions. So you got about a megabase of hyperacetylated chromatin. And I go, wow, okay, if you can, if there's a system that would epigenetically rewrite, so to speak, a megabase of chromatin, we would be able to detect if that has a change in the high C data because this is such a large stretch of chromatin that gets acetylated. And so we set off doing that. And very quickly and early on, we discovered that these create really long range interactions between these hyperacetylated chromatin domains, so-called mega domains formed by BRD4. You could think of these as like super large, super enhancers. These interactions can be you know, tens of megabases apart, uh, opposite ends of the chromosome we see interacting with each other. Um, and then we even see interchromosomal interactions at at a frequency much higher than would be your average interchromosomal interaction. And in a locus-specific way that we could actually say, well, this is where the fusion protein binds and we got interchromosomal interactions, so which is super exciting. Um, we did a lot of the work in patient-derived cell lines, which I think was really important and insightful at the time to make sure we were working at endogenous protein expression levels and we were doing something in a very biologically meaningful system. And so we kind of had this discovery of really reprogrammed that fusion. We were, I think, the first group to show that fusion oncoproteins, namely BRD4, not reprograms chromosome 3D structure and makes this new compartment. And we also were a couple that, to, to, fortunately, because JQ1 was a very intensively studied small molecule uh, protein from the chemical biology side, there's a ton of drugs that have been developed against that. We used a degrader against BRD4, against pet proteins in general, so we could degrade those proteins, including BRD4. And we saw all of these structures go away. We kind of saw the long-range interactions between the BRD4 nut regions go down. Um, and so that was a good way. We used it really as a tool to test our hypothesis that BRD4 nut was involved in this. And it was consistent with the hypothesis, which is great. But I think it also opened up new considerations that we're thinking about of drugging the 3D genome. And is it possible to manipulate the um, three-dimensional chromosome organization for therapeutic purposes? And I think this is really a space that we we are thinking about very deeply for the and this will take, I think, a few years, but it's it's a very exciting area and something unexpected that came out of that work. And you also created a mouse model, right, for this? We were involved recently in the mouse model. I don't want to take credit for creating the mouse model. Yeah, we have a yeah, great, yeah, also, yeah, we have a great collaboration with Chris French on um, many aspects of nut carcinoma biology. And I think it's it's one of these really great collaborations in science, which is fortuitous um, and that we are both complementary in multiple aspects, meaning both the science, I'm a biochemist by training, we think about mechanism and the players involved, and he's a pathologist and a translational cancer biologist, so we can seamlessly work together on projects and not overlap. And um, that's kind of, he had created this mouse model, which we had helped um, um, validate through some of like cut and run type experiments to make sure that the epigenetic landscape worked, worked well. We kind of helped them to guide them through that, but they really, he's really the one who had invested a lot of effort and in, interest into that. And he's also a great person and, and it's very easy to talk to him and bounce ideas off him. And, you know, it, it's writing with him is fantastic. And I, I think we'll continue that for many years because it's just a super great thing. We had another paper come out too about 
um, which I could talk about a little bit about. Um, kind of going back a little bit to Polycomb, we found that EZH2 cooperates with BRD4 not, and not carcinoma. And there's a lot of synergy there. And so that was uh, an interest, another great collaboration with Chris, where he had identified EZH2 as a vulnerability in the cancer. And then we had done a lot of the biomechanistic, more biochemistry in terms of cut and run to look at the K27 trimethyl binding patterns to show that they don't, that kind of make what you expect, but it's always nice to show this, that they're totally separate from the BRD4 not hyperacetylated regions, and they respond to tazaminostat and EZH2 inhibitor, as you'd expect. Um, and there's some, some really exciting results there where if you combine tazaminostat with a BET inhibitor in a mouse, in mouse models, not the new mouse model, but other mouse models, um, that you actually can get in one cohort of the mice, we actually saw a cure of the disease, which was really stunning. So, you know, we are, it's super exciting translational work to kind of think about how that would impact patients. And so we're, we always have a piece of our minds are thinking about that, but a piece of our minds now are also thinking about 3D genome and how epigenetic regulators cooperate to set up 3D genome. And you know, in this case, it could be EZH2 and BRD4 not or, or others. And so that's kind of new thoughts that have been spurred out of that collaboration. Yeah, it's really too easy to interview you because you already answer all my questions. <laughs> uh, but I still have, have some. Um, you also wrote a news and views article for Nature Genetics on bat proteins and how these proteins loop and compartmentalize the 3D genome. You already touched upon some of the aspects uh, right now. Um, when it comes to genome folding, most papers seem to focus on CTCF, coazine, and condensine, like the classical proteins that are associated to the boundaries. But I rarely see papers talking about other proteins being involved in those chromatin looping processes. Um, can you talk a little bit about the general role of bat proteins in this uh, process? Yeah, so this is still something that's really getting a scratch on the surface. And yeah, I mean, it was really exciting to write that news and views, although the, the real credit goes to the, the primary labs that had driven those projects. Um, so... One, they kind of have really interesting dual roles, and it seems like BRD4 can, and can play different roles in maybe different contexts, but also different roles of folding. So it seems like BRD4 can help recruit the cohesin loader to chromatin. I think Raj and James' group has shown that very nicely, um, and that was part of that. And so it can help looping, but then another BET protein, BRD2, helps to make compartments or these self-associating type interactions. And BRD4, because of the bromo domains, homologous bromo domains with BRD2, it can kind of compete with BRD2. So if BRD2 is promoting compartmentalization, BRD4 is kind of maybe inhibiting it because it's competing with BRD2 for binding. Um, and BRD4 is also promoting likely loop extrusion through CTCF and cohesin. So um, that was some of the new aspects of that. And I agree. It's definitely, there's there's still going to be a lot of interesting work coming from work on CTCF and cohesin, but I think the field is starting to look at, we certainly, my lab is BRD4, not in other factors that are involved in 3D genome structure. And I think we're going to get a, a lot of interesting aspects of that. I think that's, these couple of papers are kind of the first, are pointing that there's more, there's a lot more to study here than than maybe we initially thought. And there's going to be a lot some proteins that like brd4 we think it does one thing and it might do a couple different things that's either context dependent or because there's more than one way that the gene more than one mechanism of genome folding and certain factors may influence that mechanism in diff different ways 
So imagine you are due to submitting a grant proposal tomorrow. Um, what you would you have written into that? Um, and uh, you still have like eight hours to go. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, fortunately, I'm not writing any grants right now. You know. So what do we? Yeah. What would go kind of in that? So I, we're working on two. I think the two really important questions in terms of you know related to what we've already been working on in terms of like compartments and BRD for another. What are the mechanism? So what's actually going on here? What are the players involved? Um, what parts of those players are involved? And, um, you know, are is it just BRD4 nut itself? What parts of BRD4 nut? What other factors might be involved? So that's some of it. And then I think we're thinking very hard about the function question, and which I think is a, a probably, in my opinion, in my opinion, this is the biggest question in kind of the Chrome 3D chromosome structure field. We have great methods to map chromatin 3D structure now. We can do this using genomics technologies like Hi-C and Micro-C. There's now um, imaging technologies that have come really far along with like super resolution imaging or a lot of the in-situ genomics um, type approaches, the MRFish and these type of things. But we still don't understand how the classic you know phrase, how structure begets function. And so we're really starting to think about that. And one of the reasons we picked the fusion to study fusion oncoproteins, we're focusing on BRD4 not, we're definitely considering others, was because it those are the key, the sole drivers of many diseases. And so there's clearly a functional connection there from the get-go. And it allows us to kind of get our foot in um, and allows us to go deep really readily and trying to figure out what's the functional implication by by focusing on those proteins and manipulating them or other aspects of that. And so if, if grants were to be coming out, that's what we would be thinking about is, is a mechanism because mechanism allows us to maybe develop interventions and drugs if we understand it and then function to really make sure that all the technologies that we can use to, to make these observations are actually connected to some sort of biological outcome that's in likely functionally important. So for the last about 30 minutes, we have been on a journey through your scientific scientific career. Um, did we miss something important or would you like to add something? Maybe we can also pick up the MD PhD story that you teased about at the beginning. Yeah, maybe we yeah, I think maybe we go back to that. Um yeah, I mean, I think I it, it was a really interesting, I mean, I, I'm very happy with my decision in that. So in, in general, and I think what had happened at that point was, you know, I had this PhD, had a nice result out of the PhD work, um, and no one else in the lab was really working on it, and Roger's lab was really working on this. So if I left it, it would kind of, the project, if I went back, if I went to clinics, so if I completed the last year and a half of MD, I would have gone into clinics and would kind of have to put that down and would have lost a little bit of that momentum. And you know, the opportunity really presented itself to, to to take the risk and do my own thing. And it probably meant, you know, in the right way that I shouldn't do the medical degree. So I think that was good. And I think, you know, then you go back and you try to stay in contact with mentors over the years. So then you go back, I went back to my undergraduate mentors, you know, who kind of help you figure out what your next career step is for graduate school or medical school. In my case, I'm a DPHD. And I, you know, talked to them or wrote them and told them, I was like, oh, yeah, we knew that when you would apply. And I was kind of like, well, well, then then why do I apply to a, you know, eight-year dual degree program when you kind of figured the MD wasn't going to pan out? So uh, I think it was just kind of my personality. Ironically, like the 
undergraduate lab I was in, um, many of those students had kind of done similar things in terms of they'd gone to MD-PhD programs, not finished them. Even Roger's lab was kind of famous for recruiting the MD-PhD students and then them not finishing the MD. Others after me have finished the MD, so it has worked out. But I think um, it was just different. I, you know, I, I think it's also good. We, I have, I think very deeply about the biochemistry of, of nuclear organization and chromosome 3D structure, and that comes a lot from my training in Roger's lab. But I think having this interest in medicine influences the problems we pick um, and a lot, I think we hope to try to sit at this interface between basic biology, really fundamental biochemistry and cancer biology. I don't view myself as a cancer biologist, but those are the biological systems we are working in. I mean, you go into the lab and you're going to see stuff on fusion oncoproteins and that it's just, it, we can't untie that from cancer. So I, I really hope it allows us to, to use those systems to learn something about how the genome is folded or misfolded. And then that allows us to get at principles of chromosome 3D structure and identify those players. And I think we've started to be successful in there and hopefully we can continue to be, but then also have a direct connection to function so that if we want to try to think about something in terms of how does 3D genome influence biological function, how do we intervene in DNA misfolding, it kind of allows us to, to sit at this really interesting interface um, between the two. So to finish, uh, could you give us a brief summary of your maybe most important findings? So what you would consider your most important finding? Um, I, it's still, you know, I'm I'm very proud of the the polyteine tag connection. Um, again, that, but you know, I think you're also really proud of um, stuff you do independently. So I think you know the identification of this new compartment or subcompartment um, formed by BRD49 and this kind of from a very basic science perspective, kind of pushing the limits of and being able to discover that to be able to understand how compartments are formed. But then it also goes hand in hand with this interesting discovery that fusion aquaproteins reprogram chromosome 3D structure. And many other groups after us have seen that as well. And I think this is a really interesting theme that we're just starting to scratch the surface of as we better understand those proteins. So thank you, Kel, for your time and for being on the show. Yep. Thank you so much, Stefan. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.